coming up on the Chassis Cast. I kind of stepped away from thinking about career as let's limit your possibilities, pick an occupation, become that occupation, get a gold watch and retire. Dr. Linda Party on the challenge of turning a hard-earned degree into a meaningful career in this brave new world. So AI, I mean, we've all heard and read about it and it's not going to stop. So you have to think about what skills can a robot not do? The changing art of trailblazing in this episode of the Chassis Cast. From UFE's Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, this is the Chassis Cast, a program dedicated to bringing experts and insights to the issues that shape our lives because words have to matter. Now, here's your host, Dr. Martha Dow. My pleasure to welcome Dr. Linda Party uh, to the Chassis Cast today. Uh, Linda is the Associate uh, Dean of the College of Arts and a member of the new uh, research cluster that we've added to Chassis, CALL, uh, which uh, refers to the career and learning for life. So welcome, Linda. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. I wonder if a, a great place to start would be to tell us a bit about what CALL is, what your vision is, you know, why Chassis maybe? Yeah, a couple different things. CALL like is career, but not job research, right? So it's about career, the whole lifespan of what you're going to do with yourself through from the time you leave high school to university to the time you have your multiple career transitions to the time you retire to the time you go wherever you go. Um, And then the economic forecasting of that, the social imperative of career needs to be looked at. Um, It's a whole cluster. I mean, that's why I think that the cluster word is really interesting. It's a cluster of different roles that we have in society and we have as individuals, and we don't often talk about that. So I'm thinking that as a cluster of researchers, we've got economists, we've got career development people, we've got counseling kind of people that are working with us. We can open up some of those conversations that we don't talk about, but need to talk about. As the world has changed, our economy has changed, the world of work has changed dramatically. So we need to understand that better to make better decisions. What brought you to that understanding? Because I'm, I'm with you on this, right? We've talked lots about this, but what brought you to this journey in terms of your own research? So I think I started my career in student affairs, in financial aid, in academic advising, in um, the career centers. And at that time, you know, you probably, you know yourself, Martha, in high school, they often give you like an aptitude test you know, here, take this aptitude test and we're going to eliminate what you're not good at. We're going to spotlight what you're good at. And that's where you need to aim your career. And then I think back to my parents and they, you know, definitely took a occupation, became something, worked at that till they're 65. Well, that doesn't exist for people anymore. When I was working as a financial aid officer, half the time the students would come and they thought finances was their issue but it was a whole bunch of other things, right? It all piled in. So over the years working in post-secondary, I've realized that there's multiple layers to picking what your career is. There's multiple layers to figuring out how you're going to have security as an individual in the world. And that means feeding yourself, but it also means keeping yourself mentally well at work and at home. And your work and life is all part of who you are. So I I kind of stepped away from thinking about career as let's limit your possibilities, pick an occupation, become that occupation, get a gold watch and retire, as opposed to looking at how do I expand? 
how do I move? How do I shift when I need to shift when things, you know, change? And look at, like, we learned a lot about that from COVID. We learned a lot about that from the jobs that are available now. That the way we've been training people to think about career doesn't work. It's very nonlinear. And what the analogy I'd use for students now is one time we used to talk about career ladders. Well, a career ladder, it's more like a career rock climbing wall. You know, you have to hang, you kind of climb up a few steps, and then you go over one and you hang on for a little while till you get your breath or get some more skills. You might even move laterally. But we don't talk about that. We don't understand that. We don't see it in the research that often. We talk about progression, but progression isn't straight. And so I got quite interested in how we tell young people or we tell people transitioning from one career to the other at different life stages what that really looks like, not the myth. It's interesting, uh, as a university, just generally, not just UFE, um, how are we sort of complicit in sort of setting students up, but also um, how are we able to, in fact, give them opportunities to understand careers in a really different way? Yeah. I think, like, for instance, BCIT does a really good job. It says, take our program and you're going to become X. And they do. They train you specifically to become X. And I call that having career-ready education. So if you want to become a welder, you take welding training, you become a welder. Um, If you become a dental hygienist, you take that training. And career-ready programs are really, really important because you know exactly what they are. But for three quarters, or probably 75% of the population, they don't go into career-ready training. So at a university, we don't go into philosophy and say, oh, and look at Indeed or on LinkedIn, there's a job posting for a philosopher. We don't see that in sociology. We don't see that in most of the humanities and social sciences. Yet the majority of the workforce has a humanities or social science background if they have a university education. And we're not very good at talking about how does the largest area of academic programming align to career, not to necessarily to job. So career, so I think that the humanities, social sciences, even the sciences, it's kind of a a bit of a myth that STEM grads get out and know exactly what they're doing. There's all kinds of data that shows they have just as much trouble like a biologist. Where are you going to be in biology? Where do you first get that first job, that first career move? And so we need to, the universities need to start talking about career readiness. The skills that you get from a liberal education are going to provide you with the readiness to do all kinds of different jobs, um, all kinds of different careers, to move if you get bored, to move if you um, have, there's an emergency or there's a necessity or one occupation dries up or you don't like who you're working for. <laughs> you know, you can move. But a career-ready kind of education, it's hard to move. Like once you're a welder, you're a welder unless you take more education. Um, you can get in, like say from a philosophy degree, you could become a doctor if you want. You could do an MBA if you want. Like there's lots of mobility And I think we need to do a better job of telling our students that you can start here and go anywhere. You'd know much better than I, but I feel like that's going to get even harder to communicate to students as we feel more and more economic pressures. And I think part of that, at least, is sort of parents, right? So they're, you know, I hear so often from my students saying, oh my goodness, my parents are giving me so much grief about taking a sociology course. What are you going to do with that? That sort of thing. I wonder a bit about that. Like, 
the role for universities to connect with community in terms of educating about pathways, you know, all the work that you do with parents? Are there other things that you've thought about over your career that we could do differently in terms of that engagement? So most of like people will go on a website and say, well, let's use sociology for an example. And you go on a sociology's webpage and it'll say, our grads are doing this. And then you look at the occupations that these saying they're doing it and you want a student or a parent goes well how are they doing that because it doesn't say sociologist it says all kinds of other occupations that you think well no I thought you would have needed a business degree thought you would have needed um you know like in some other type of training what goes on with it but we don't ever tell the student what they did between the degree and the occupation we also don't package up and tell the students these are the skills you're learning in this degree that transfer far out into the workplace so what I, it's what I call far transfer. And I think we need to do a better job of definitely with research, but also with how we even talk about things in courses to say, you know, you're doing this here for now for an academic reason, but that same reason, if you flip the language of it, is something an employer is looking for and help the students own that language. We've also got to start showing students how um, things are hybrid, how skills and different occupations go together in different ways. That if you take, say, media arts and sociology together, maybe you make data come alive. You know, data coming alive is really important today. Like, we've got lots of data, but if it's going to be all shelved in books and binders, people aren't going to see it. But if you had a media arts minor and a sociology major, that data now becomes very accessible. And those are the jobs of the future. It's interesting, um, you know, just to toot the horn of chassis for a quick second. It's, it's really what, um, it's not really chassis, it's the community. They came to us and said, one of our biggest challenges is that we feel like there's data out there. We feel like there's knowledge, but it's not packaged in a way that is really usable to us. It's, it's not accessible and it's not sort of ready for us to make it actionable. And so I think I'm often most excited by our knowledge mobilization team in terms of all the creative ideas they have about mobilizing what we know. Yeah, absolutely. And like when parents are nervous, I start talking to parents about, well, how are we going to robot proof our kids? Right. So AI, I mean, we've all heard and read about it and it's not going to stop. So you have to think about what skills can a robot not do? What, you know, and any job that has rules and, you know, like set rules, set procedures, things that can be programmed are easily going to be taken over by AI or robots. But then we need the human on the other side to interpret that or to deliver it to another human. And then that's going to take a skill set that's not easily like taught in a rote kind of way or easily taught in um, an assessment type of way. It's experiencing it and trying to move it from um, like dissemination to something that's interactive, that's engaging, that draws people in, um, that interpersonal. I mean, I don't like the word soft skills because the soft skills are actually hard skills to learn. And they're all around you. Right? And I think universities have to help students realize that they come in with a lot of knowledge. We need to help them package it to knowledge they feel confident using in multiple venues, multiple um, opportunities for themselves. It's one of the things I really appreciate by, about one of our faculty associates, um, Dr. Amir Shabani, because when he's he does work in AI, 
And what he's always talking about is not replacement, right? It's really about complementing and we better understand it well enough so that we can think about how, you know, AI complements what we do as opposed to replaces. So I've always really appreciated that perspective. Yeah. And that's exactly it. I mean, so when we look at like, how many of us do our income tax ourselves anymore? You use something like TurboTax or something, right? Like, um, we still need people to, to problem solve the big tax issues in the world or to do investigations into that. But we're not going to need people to process that line by line information. Um, that can be done. So, like, how do we live alongside AI? How do we remain sort of like the superior thinker of AI? And the other thing you have to remember is humans can unplug AI. So who gets to decide who gets to plug it in and who gets to pl- unplug it? Um, who gets to decide, like, self-driving cars? We've been talking about that now for 15 years. Um, I can remember years ago having an assignment on self-driving cars in a communications course I was teaching, and that was a long time ago. The dialogue, the, 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 the thinking power that students need or the careers and the opportunities they're going to have is who's going to make the rules up for self-driving cars? Who's going to negotiate with the cities, with councils, with parking lots, all of that to make room for self-driving cars? Those students are going to have to have different skill set than just understanding how to program a self-driving car. I know you uh, think and, and talk lots about credentialing. And so I wondered about how does some of what you're talking about translate into the kinds of credentials we offer, whether they're micro or the badges conversation, et cetera. I wonder if you could talk just a bit about credentialing. Yeah. Credentialing is really complicated in so many ways because parents and students think that is the sign or that is the thing you get when someone acknowledges that you've got the competency or have learned something. But you have to think with how fast things are moving, that credential is only good this year or next year, and you've got to keep learning. And so credentials, I think, definitely need to change in the sense that they're more hybrid, more interconnected. Will Maher, who teaches in our media arts program, told me a really cool story about a student who was, um, hadn't taken a hairdressing program and you know has a credential as a hairdresser but then got bored doing that, came back and took media arts, got a credential as a media arts, got a BA in media arts. Then she went and worked in a graphic um, animation studio in Vancouver, and she realized she was really good with drawing and arranging the fur on cartoon animals. And, and so she took her hairdressing skills, right? <laughs> and so, like, say, if she was doing a a cartoon or something about a mouse who's out in the heat and then he's going, got, gets rained on and then he goes for a swim and then he's dried again. All of that has to change in how he looks. So the two credentials of having hairdressing credential and having media art she put together. And that's where I think micro-credentials or um, smaller credential packs help build specific skills if we help students see how they can go together. Um, interdisciplinary degrees, I think, pick your own journey degree. How, who are we to say that, you know, this is a major and that is a minor? I think there's lots of room and I think it'll be quite exciting to see universities get around putting a business, you know, minor with a philosophy major, which we don't pair together, right? But there's, you look at AI and you look at what Google's doing, they're looking for definitely that philosophical thinking 
with some business, with some computing, put it together, and you've got that think tank happening within, like, one person. I love that story about the uh, hairdresser. And uh, it also reminds me, though, like, is that accidental? Can we, can we really anticipate enough to support students as they're making those choices? Or is that kind of a neat story as we think in hindsight? And how do you see that? So I don't think that's where I think credentialing is a bit of a false myth, right? So we have to have credentials, I think, um, because people seem to take that as a um, recognition that I'm done, that I've learned something. They need that for that piece. But as we go, I think people will start to um, rely on their own embodied knowing and their own pieces. What we have to do is help students connect all those informal skills that they have from all different types of experiences they've had in their lives um, to the incidental learning that they go. So like someone with a background in adult ed, I believe in incidental learning, informal learning, and then formal learning. So formal learning needs a credential. But not all learning can be assessed. I mean, we shouldn't necessarily, um, I mean, think of all the things you've learned from motherhood, right? Those are or parenting or whatever. You, you definitely don't get a credential for that. <laughs> but I've definitely you learned. You do some, pay for it, though. <laughs> well, in some way or another. But, but you definitely get skills that you can transfer, far transfer, into other environments. Some, you know, people sometimes just need to have that dialogue, that reflective practice, that opportunity to talk through, well, I think I know that, and someone to validate that. But they don't need it validated necessarily with a piece of paper. They need it validated through dialogue, like through seeing it, demonstrate it through being given opportunities to practice and then go, whoa, I did that. You know, that was, and I think the more we can do that in classrooms, the more empowerment students have. Um, let them make mistakes. I mean, maybe we should give credit for when you fail because you learn a lot by failing. And so if the instructor, oh, you failed, you don't get this credential. Instead of saying, you gave it a good try, you failed. Great. Look at, look at all the things you've learned. Um, those you can carry on to your next opportunity and you're going to say, oh, I know what's coming. I feel it. I know how to circumvent that. That's the skill. So how we teach that, I'm not, you know, I think it's more by doing and being open and allowing it to happen. Well, and it also relates to, you know, us kind of being open to blowing up what we think about in grading and how we set out evaluation and all those kinds of things and being, allowing ourselves to be a bit more creative in those ways. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's definitely a social innovation in looking at grading. Grading's very judgmental. It's very colonial in a lot of ways and how we go about it. And it, we also kill learning when we evaluate it too tightly. So when you have students who are being able to try things and then you have to stand back and go, well, your attempt wasn't as good as this person's attempt, you get that pressure piece that stops learning. I'm curious about the thing that's surprised you the most in your own journey, the things that, you know, the moments or the forks in the road or that kind of thing. Well, if somebody would have said to me I was, I'd be doing what I do today, say, 20 years ago even, I would have said, no way. Why not? I didn't see myself as somebody that would go and do a bunch of levels of post-secondary. Not at all. Um, I saw myself as somebody who, you know, was a good hard worker, but more, um, I don't know, more focused on something physical, like, you know, kind of thing and not intellectual. Um, 
But then I found when I was in that type of role, I kept getting bored. And I would I was a real observer. I'd look around at the different people I was working with or for, and I'd think, oh, what they're doing is cool. And But not giving myself permission to think, well, how did they get to do what they do is cool? So it wasn't until I allowed myself to start exploring and thinking, well, maybe I could try that and started to try. So my big surprise is, is, is if that you let go of that... Um, what you think you should do or what you've been told you could do. Again, it gets back to that assessment, you know, like, okay, these are the things you're going to be good at. You think, well, I don't want to be that. But it, ta- gives, it takes a while for you to get permission within yourself to go and do, no, I'm going to try this and I'm going to do it. Um, then you get energy from it. And the more that kind of connects, the more energy, more kind of goodwill, the more curiosity, the more curious you become, more opportunities open up. So it surprises me how curious you have to be in order to sustain your career through your life. And yet it's so interesting because it connects to what you just said about how we can sometimes kill curiosity in terms of how we grade, et cetera. So how do you sort of ensure that we're supporting that curiosity within sort of this structure we operate within? Yeah. It's, and, you know, employers are asking for creativity, curiosity, communication as their top kind of skills that they want from people. So they can train them on everything else that we think in, in post-secondary we need to be training students to do. We need to make the students hungry and curious and um, exploratory and risk-taking and creative, and they'll find their way. In the time we have, I'd love to hear in with the world in the state that it feels like it's in, um, I'm always amazed how optimistic our students still are about their uh, roles as change agents. You know, as an educator, as an as a leader in this institution, um, what are your thoughts on how we support our students in these times? I think we have to start treating our students like leaders. So, for instance, I'm teaching a course right now with our Indigenous Academic Success Cohort. And I'm not an Indigenous person, and they were doing um, a project that had a drummer, and um, everybody sat still with the, the student was drumming and everything. And then some of the Indigenous students said, well, that felt awkward. And I said, well, what felt awkward about it? And they go, well, normally we would stand up, and normally we would do this. And so I said, so why didn't you say something? And they said, well, who are we to say that to? And I said, well, to me. You should say, hey, come on, stand up. And, oh, but you're the instructor. I said, no, you're the leaders of tomorrow. You need to start leading now, right? You need to lead now, and we need to let you lead, and we need to follow. So the next time we had the next one, you know, the next kind of presentation, they started off saying, okay, well, you need to be able to do this. And they took the leadership in the classroom. And I think it's really important that we start letting them, like letting students take the lead and practice and we support. That's going to give them wings. Like that's going to give them the strength I think that they need because like the economy and everything's heavy on the students. Like and finding um, work that's not precarious is really heavy on our students and way more so than when you and I graduated. I mean, when you and I graduated, people came to the campus and recruited you. Yeah, very different. Very different. And you could see kind of pathways through. So I have a lot of faith in the young people because they are positive. And if I thought if I was them, I don't know if I'd be as positive as they are. Mm -hmm. So I do think faculty and employers in particular 
need to step up and really support them because they are the future. Well, that's a perfect place to end our conversation, at least for today. Um, I know the Chassis team is so excited about Call joining us. Um, Just so excited about the research that's coming up and the work that we're going to be able to do. Yeah, we're really excited about it too. Thank you. The Chassis Cast is a production of the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub at the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Thank you.